so you have no idea how ironic it is that we celebrate Pastor Appreciation Month a few weeks late as we talk about pride and humility on this Sunday. Um, I'm, just, I'm just super humored by that. Uh, I don't know what God's going to do with that, but uh, we'll just trust him. So today, uh, we're going to continue our Esther series, but I want to start with a couple of verses that I think set the tone for uh, the situation that we're going to step into. It's a little bit interesting. It's sort of like watching a movie if you read the book of Esther. It is this great story, and we're, we're stopping the action, and we're talking about a few scenes, and we don't know the future, but, and if you weren't here the last few weeks, then you might not know the past. So we're going to do the best we can with what we have, and I really do encourage you to read the whole story, because it is a fine story. But again, to set the tone for today, we're going to start with Ephesians 6. 12 and 13, it says that we do not fight against the flesh and blood enemies. We fight against the evil rulers and the authorities in the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world, and against the spirits in the heavenly places. So therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to stand against the enemy in the time of evil. And 1 Peter 5, 8 says, open your eyes or stay alert. Watch out, for your great enemy is the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, this is what God's word says about spiritual warfare, about spiritual battle. And a lot of us might believe that. Some of us might say, you know, that was an ancient time for an ancient culture. But I would just ask you, like, look around at the world we see. I think that enemies are really easy to spot these days. For example, I just had to bring this up, and I really do try to bring this up in humility because I think it could be any one of us, but, but this was an article in the paper just a few weeks ago, the local paper. Um, this Farmington man said that he, he is convinced that his grandmother put a hole in one of his jackets, and he was really annoyed by it, and he just kept festering on it and festering on it. And then, I'm, I'm quoting here, and then... She wouldn't stop blowing her nose at the dinner table one day, and he just couldn't get the sound and the smell of mucus out of his mind, and he thought if he killed her, then that smell and that sound would go away. Now, I have to believe that there is a lot more going on than just being angry in that story, but sometimes enemies are easy to spot. People who take out their grandmother would be an enemy. People that would walk into a church, I don't care what color the church is, during a Bible study in South Carolina and kill the people in the Bible study. Sometimes enemies are easy to spot. It's a hostile world we live in. And this series on Esther is about having faith in a hostile world. How do we stand, sometimes standing against, sometimes standing up, sometimes just engaging in the world that we face? Because sometimes the enemies are hard to spot. I remember a few years ago, several years ago, I'm on this river rush trip. It's an adventure trip that I'm bringing middle schoolers on, and how much of an adventure is that? But 24 students, four leaders, two river guides, and we're going to do adventurous things like cook our own food that we're bringing, of course, and keeping our tents dry as we go down the river on the canoe. And we're going to get a little crazy, and we're going to decide that sometimes we're going to not talk to each other while we paddle. Somehow we're going to try and communicate. If you're not a canoe paddler, you know there's two jobs. There's two very important roles. One person is in the front. They're the power. You just, you just kind of be quiet and paddle. 
and you listen to the person in the back say left, right, depending on how they go. Because the back is about steering. The back is about being in control. The back, it's kind of good to know a few of the strokes. You know, the basic stroke, the C stroke. Ooh, you could get a little fancy and do the J stroke. But I'm telling you, they trained us just a day before. So when we go out, I'm like, I'll take the back. That's good. No problem. I've canoed before. And again, sometimes enemies are easy to spot. Like when they're like, okay, now we're going to switch spots and switch partners. And I get placed with a lovely young lady whose idea of roughing it is the country inn and suites. And uh, who I'm pretty sure wasn't paying attention during the types of canoe paddles that we're going to do. So we start going down the river. And they tell us hippos are these little bubbles in the river that actually have a giant rock under them. So I say, hmm, could we please go to the left? That means you paddle on the right side. Could we, did you, are you okay? All right. We can switch sides if you want. Okay, there's rapids coming. We, uh, at one point we had to kind of pull over and they had to explain how we were going to go through the rapids. And in my mind, I'm like, can I please just go in the back? Can I just go in the back? Because sometimes you just want to steer the boat. (sighs) Because sometimes your enemy is paddling in the front. When God puts you in the front. And your enemy is not the 13-year-old girl that doesn't know how to paddle in the back. But today is really about spotting the enemies that are in our life that attack us. And absolutely, absolutely standing against them. How do we stand against those enemies? So we're going to pick up the story in Esther chapter 3. Now, we're actually going to go a couple verses before that, and I really encourage you to read the whole thing. I'd love to spend the whole time doing it. We could just have this great, like, reader's theater, but we'd be here a long, long time. So, we pick up the story in three, and what happens here is that Esther, the hero, the godly, fades into the background. They kind of have this abrupt shift in the story. Things are going well. Esther gets raised to queendom, and yet she's this obscure, orphan Jewish girl, and all of a sudden, she's not really, she slides to the back of the story. She doesn't have any real power. Yes, the people still love her. Yes, I think the king is still infatuated with her, but she slides to the background. And Mordecai, who's the, the cousin that was older than her, that adopts her, that cares for her, that has the faith, at least the thread that we see in the sor- story, he uncovers an assassination attempt on the king, and it gets foiled, and he, he, d- he doesn't get rewarded. It gets recorded, but not rewarded. And all of a sudden, the story shifts, and it says, Now, sometime later, King Xerxes decided to promote Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the, and it'll say later in the story, the enemy of the Jews. And he promoted him to the highest official position under the king. For no apparent reason. We'd expect after this great thing that Mordecai does, that he would get rewarded, but he doesn't. Instead, this man, who is, um, whose name means magnificent, by the way, just thought that was a little bit ironic. Mordecai means little man, Haman means magnificent, and oh, but what a magnificent ego Haman has, because he is in this highly honored position, but he is not highly honorable. In fact, the king has to command people to respect him. 
Maybe his character is not worthy of respect. We're not really told. It just says that people would bow down from the greatest to the least because the king commanded them to. Except Mordecai doesn't do this. We're not even really told why Mordecai doesn't do this. Maybe he thinks the guy's kind of a dork. I don't know. We're just, the only thread we get is day after day, the city officials, the other government workers, Mordecai's one of them, says, why don't you do this? Why don't you just give in to the cultural agenda? Why don't you just do this? It's not that big of a deal. And they go tell Haman, because isn't that what our coworkers like to do, hypothetically? They like to go tell the boss just to see, hey, they're getting away with it. I want to see if I can get away with it. And so Haman finds out, and he is enraged. Seems like a little excessive response to someone not bowing in respect. Remember, it's an honor-shame culture. And so at this moment, Haman decides not just to find a way to get Mordecai to uh, not move up in his government job. He doesn't find a way to just fire Mordecai. He doesn't find a way to just kill Mordecai. He is so incensed, because this is the one thread we get. The the friends say Mordecai's a Jew. So we can extrapolate potentially from that, that since Mordecai's a Jew, Mordecai, I don't know, follows the Ten Commandments that says bow down before no other gods. And Mordecai doesn't bow down. And he is left alone in the story. His friends, the people that he knows that come to him, they say, why don't you do this? Day after day, the text tells us. And then Haman is filled with rage, and he decides it's not enough to just get rid of Mordecai. Anyone that might have this response to Haman, he will take out. Do you ever have places in your life that are just thrown into absolute confusion? Where you have no idea what to do, and no idea why God's letting something like this happen. Because again, God's name is not brought up in this entire story. The whole book. And I firmly believe that the author does this intentionally so that we have to search hard for him. Because sometimes in our life, we have to search hard for God. We have to see where he is. And so the story goes on. The the Persians were a people that loved fate. They believed in there was this fate. And so every year, the first month of the year, they would, which happens to be April in our month, that's important for the story, they would cast these lots that are called Pur or Purim. And they would cast these lots, it's like throwing dice to figure out when the important events of the day were going to happen. I guess it's sort of like gambling. And so Haman decides to come up with a plan because although he's arrogant, he's also clever. He comes up with a plan to like set up, set something in motion. And he uses the day of Pur where everybody believes in fate And wouldn't you just have it that the dice happen to roll out and this April, this first day of the first month, that the the purr that's cast, that's thrown, is almost a year later for the day that he's going to declare this decree that he's going to manipulate the king to sign to destroy the Jews. Almost a year later. Hmm. Is it just fate that the Jewish people now have almost a year to prepare and find a way to counteract this? I don't know, but the text tells us that March 7th is the day Haman goes to the king. There's this people that act different than us. They don't obey the customs of the land, and it's not good for the king to keep them around. In fact, I will give a substantial sum of money. It says 10,000 bags of silver, or it says talents in your... It's like one, uh, almost two-thirds of the Persian Empire's income. 
I don't know how Haman had it. I think it's exaggerating. But maybe he was going to use the spoils of killing all the Jews to take it and then give it to the king. And it's interesting, the king's response. He says, you go ahead and you keep your money and do with the people as you please. Because remember, Xerxes' personal agenda is pleasure, power, and ego. And Haman knows it. And, or, yeah, Haman knows it, everybody knows it, and so they just play him like a fiddle. And, and Haman's agenda is more. I want more respect. I want more power. I want, I, I gotta, my only person that I'm considering is the king, but more admiration, more of this. And so this is all set into motion, and the, the decree is dictated exactly as Haman wants to. It says that in the text. And then the king, after he says, do with the people what you want, he gives him his signet ring, his gold, his sign of authority. He gives it to Haman to basically say, whatever you say, I will do. Do you ever have a boss that gives like a little too much power to someone who doesn't deserve it? And you're like, what are you thinking? But then you have to sit in this environment and go, God, how do I live in this situation when this person is a complete Nincompoop. <laughs> it says that the king and Haman sat down to drink or sat down to toast in verse 12. Or thir- sorry, 15. But the city of Susa fell into confusion. It's almost like Xerxes has no idea what is really going on. Now, I don't know when things look hopeless in your life and confusion in your life, what you do, but I was studying um, Genesis and it says that that there was darkness over the waters of the land. There was chaos is the word that's, that's used in that. And it says the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaos. That in the darkness, in the mystery, in the confusion, that God is there. That comes really important later. Because when Jesus gets propelled into the wilderness during, um, right after his baptism and his identification with God as God's son, his beloved son, Satan is there in the wilderness, which is in the chaos. It's important for how we stand and how we respond to these things that get, that just get, I guess, confusing as a mild term. And see, when, like I said, sometimes enemies are easy to spot, and when I look at Haman, my first instinct is to go, man, I hope he gets what's coming to him. Because the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? Now, I just want to watch him fall because he is an arrogant, prideful, evil person. And that's what I call reading over the text. Haman's got to get what he deserves. But I think the Spirit of God and the Word of God would have us read under the text. Actually, a better way to say it is, would have the text read us and would ask us, how much of Haman is in you? How much of Haman is in me? Do I get upset when a month goes by of pastor appreciation and no one says anything? That's not true, but example. (laughs) Do you get threatened when others get rewarded? Or others get promoted? or upset when people don't appreciate you like they should, or if someone attacks your pride or your personhood, you just want revenge? Or you get kind of pissy when the person in the back of the boat who's trying to steer is doing a horrible job? 
Spirit of God would ask you, how much of Haman is in you? See, I think it's easy to spot some enemies in the story. That's why they're there. Haman is so easy to spot. It even says in the text, the enemy of the Jews, (laughs) in case you missed it. But I think the story, the writers in this story give these characters, they put them in the narrative to give us a window, not just into the situation of the story, but into the situation of the human condition. That's what the Bible does. And this is trying to give us a window into the story of the human condition of pride. That's enemy number one on the inside, is pride. He explodes with anger, Haman does, because Mordecai won't bow down to him, because that's what pride does. Pride wants praise. Pride wants recognition. Pride wants respect, and it demands it. And it's worse. It's worth. It's ruthless. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says that pride doesn't get pleasure from having something. It actually gets pleasure from having more than someone else. Because when you have riches, but someone else is equally as rich, or when you're smart, but someone else is equally as smart, or you're whatever, and someone else is equally good-looking, let's go with that, you know, then then it's it's not something to be proud of anymore. He kind of says it this way with sexual drive. Lust may drive you to have an affair, but pride will drive you to have an affair just to tell yourself and your friends that you can do it. It is, it is monstrous. Haman doesn't want to make sure that just Mordecai dies. He wants to take everyone out. Read, if you just look closely in the text, it says all, every province. The decree goes everywhere, all the Jews. In, in fact, there's this moment where it says that all, the, I, do, we might even have it in there. Uh, the, we might even have the verse. Sorry, I got super excited. All the Jews, men and women, young and old, children, would be killed, annihilated, and slaughtered on a single day. I mean, that's what pride does. It goes everywhere. When you're attacked by pride, everything screams, fight back, get what you deserve. Someone hurts you, hurt them. And yet Mordecai He doesn't fight back because Mordecai knows that Haman is not the real enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers, against the evil that creeps inside of us like pride. And so what does he do? Verse 1 tells us. When Mordecai learned about all these things that were done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes, And he went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. If you struggle with pride, would you take the example of Mordecai? See, this sackcloth and ashes is a sign of humility. It's a sign of going before God in repentance and in humility. Here's a few verses about going to God in humility, because that's what we're supposed to do when pride attacks. Not fight back, go to God in humility. Here's just a few verses about what pride does, and what humility does. Proverbs 18 says that before his downfall, a person's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. James tells it this way, he gives more grace. That's why the scriptures say God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 
And he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You go to God in humility. Jesus even says it this way, just as clear as it can be. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. Go to God in humility. When was the last time that you did a humility check? Humility checks are, are pretty easy. You can just ask yourself, like, when the last time you really thought about how much people were thinking about you? And if people were giving you enough respect. If you did something great and you didn't get credit for it, and it kind of irked you, that's a humility check. Humility, um, as some people say, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking rightly of yourself. You don't compare yourself to others. You just go to God and you realize that I, I'm not perfect. And God doesn't expect me to be perfect. God puts a standard up that, that we can't meet, but he meets all the time. In fact, he met it in Christ. And if we put our trust in him, that's where we have any credibility and the only credibility. And we go in humility. It's pride's attack. Second one. Second one's pretty quick, but the other enemy inside of us that we see in this story is doubt. See, because Mordecai doesn't just go to the city gates in sackcloth and ashes. He doesn't just go to in sackcloth and ashes in his house because God would have heard him, would have heard him be repentant. God would have heard him be humble. He goes to the city gate because he knows there is a person inside the palace that actually might be able to do something about this. He goes to the city gates in the sackcloth and ashes to be assigned for Esther. Because when doubt creeps in, we have to go to others for help. Because when doubt creeps in, we're, we freak out. Doubt, when doubt attacks, it tells us to sit back. It tells us to shut up. It tells us to not do anything. Esther didn't even know. She didn't even know this was going on. When she hears about that, that Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes, she sends clothes to him. You're not conforming to the culture. God is blessing us in exile. You have a good government job. I'm the queen. Why can't we just live this way and try and live right with God? Why do we have to make a scene here? Why do we have to have commotion? You know, some people might do that to you. Mordecai humbly says, and he writes a report in chapter 4, sends this to the servant because Esther didn't come out. She sent her servants. He goes, you don't know what's going on. We're going to get killed. And she sends back, um, and, and he says, we're going to get killed, and you need to do something about it. And she says, no, thank you. Remember, if you were here in the story, you know that Mordecai and Esther have grown up together. Mordecai loves her. Mordecai's adopted her. She has always obeyed Mordecai. Always. And she says no to him. I think that's significant. I think that's why the writer gives us this word-for-word -word response about it. That basically says, hey, Mordecai, you're risking your job, you're risking your dignity, you might even be risking your life, and maybe mine. And he says, Esther, you're the queen, I love you, you don't understand, you got to do something about this. Don't think for a minute that you're going to escape this. And she's like, look, look, I know you raised me, and I know you love me, but it is a capital offense to go before the king uninvited. He's got to extend this golden scepter, give you permission. And even then, think about what I'd be doing. I'd be going to him to say, um, excuse me, king, I don't like the way you're running your kingdom. Excuse me, boss, boss's boss's boss, I don't like the way you're running your company. I know I didn't have a meeting, I know I didn't get invited, but I just want to tell you, it's 
pretty similar. And she says, there's something you don't know. The king hasn't summoned me for 30 days. She's the queen. He's the king. They're married. He has a very full harem. He's not very faithful. And he hasn't asked for her for 30 days. Doubt has set in. I doubt my beauty and my charm that worked wonders to get me to the queendom is working anymore. Doubt says sit back. And most friends would just stop there. Because doubt opens this floodgate of fear and all this stuff comes out in us. And maybe that's where you're at right now. A friend of mine reached out and, and she said, um, I have this opportunity to, to, I think it's a promotion to go, to go into an, a new job, but I'm scared. Um, I'm scared that I won't that I won't get it. I'm scared that if I get it, I might fail at it, and I don't want to let my family down. And, and I remember 15 years ago, this person saying in church, oh, you're so dependable. She's like, I don't want to be dependable. I want to be adventurous. I want to take the risk, and I'm so afraid of failure. My heart just hurt for her. I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to say, you have no idea what an amazing gift it is to be dependable. That's another word for Faithful. That's a godly trait. And you can be faithful and adventurous because faith means to trust God and adventure really with God just means to trust him into the unknown. But doubt opens the floodgate of fear. It'd be very easy for Mordecai to just sit back too. Esther wants to sit back. Mordecai wants to sit back. And maybe you've been in a situation where you felt like God was saying, hey, jump into this and you didn't do it. And now you're doubting yourself. Maybe you're even shaming yourself. But we do not see this in the story. What we see in the story is that Mordecai loves her enough to give her a bigger picture of God's future. That the status quo, the place where they're at, the uncertainty, the unknown, the hopelessness that everybody else would see is not what Mordecai sees. And he gives her a bigger picture of God's future. In verse 13, he says of chapter 4, don't think for a minute that because you're in the palace that you're going to escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you, your relatives, your family will die. But who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. When doubt creeps up, God's providence stands against it. When doubt tells you to sit back, God's providence says, I've been there, I'm there, I'm working behind the scenes, even if you can't see me. Doubt says, I'm nothing special. Doubt says, I don't know the Bible. Doubt says, I've never talked to anyone about my faith in Jesus. Doubt says, I've never heard God speak. Doubt says, I've never been on a mission trip. You know what God's providence says? God's providence says, you know what? I put you in a place, Mordecai, where there's, there was an assassination attempt and you, you stopped it. I was there. I I changed that fate, put this thing a year away so that you guys could plan because I believe in you and I'm working behind the scenes. God's providence says, hey, you're in exile and I took this orphan girl and I made her the queen. God's providence is at work in your life, even if you can't see it. That's why when doubt creeps in, you've got to go to others for help because sometimes we're just so low. Sometimes we're just so sitting back. Sometimes we're just so ashamed that we don't know how to see God's providence And God just says, that's okay, go to others for help. They will help you see the providence. And Mordecai says, Esther, 
like the fate of the nation, the fate of your family, the fate of the world, the fate of God's restoration plans to redeem the creation and be a blessing for the world so far as it is in human terms is in your hands. Who knows if God's providence brought you to this place for this time? Who knows? Maybe God created you with a purpose and for a purpose to, to be the agent of salvation for our people. Maybe you've had moments like that in your life where you're like, oh, I think God might be in this. And if doubt or pride creep in, if they're these bullies that tell you to fight back or sit back, then, then you just stand up. And you go to God humbly. That's what Jesus did. Because this is not... This is not going to be a sermon about, hey, for such a time as this, stop chasing the personal agenda of getting more, whether you're Mordecai or Esther or Haman, or getting comfortable. Like, go to God. This isn't like some rah-rah about how you can be amazing. I think you're amazing. I'm sure God thinks you're more amazing. But that's just going to lead to pride. No. Be you. Be the ordinary you. The you that God created the you that God loves, the you that God sees in all of your fullness, past, present, and future, and yes, he sees your mistakes, but he sees all of it, and he says, oh, if you would just let me work with you, if you would let me be the glove, let me be the hand in your, your glove, I would do amazing things, and, and we would have so much fun. God, is desperate for people that will just say yes to him. That will fight against, that will stand against the pride by going to him in humility. That will not sit back when the doubt creeps in, but will go to go others and help and see God's providence. He will do amazing things. Amazing, amazing things. We can put our faith in Jesus, who has both of these experiences. When, if you're like, oh, pride and doubt are doing this to me, Jesus went into the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. He went into the wilderness, he had to face Satan, and he was tempted, and he responded with humility. He said, well, God's word says this. God's word says this. He didn't say, all right, put him up, let's go. He said, this is what God's word says. He went to him in humility, and he, he defeated. He resisted and defeated, and the devil left. And at the end of his ministry, he goes to a garden. And he's, he's in so much agony that he says he sweats bloods, John 17. And he says, oh God, if I don't have to go through this, would you please take it away? He's being tempted to not fulfill his mission in the garden. Does that sound like anywhere else in the scripture where there's a serpent that might be saying, did God really say, insert doubt? Pride comes at the beginning, doubt comes at the end, and at the end, Jesus goes to his goes to his friend. The son of God who has all of the power of the world goes to his friends and says, would you just pray with me tonight? Go to others for help. Bring it into light. God's providence will show up. He's always been faithful. He will always be faithful. This is not the end of the story because you were made for more. You were made to be an agent of action, but before you're an agent of action, you've got to stop and go to God. The, we'll close with um, Second Chronicles. On the impetus of action, when Esther's trying to decide what she would do, 
She says, go and fast for me. Basically saying what Solomon and God tells the people as they build the temple. You know, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, repent in humility, then I would hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal, heal their land. I don't know if that means your land or if it just means your faith or your family or your job. But I know that when you go to God in humility, he lifts you up. And if you need to be lifted up today, you just raise your hands as we sing this song in closing. You can pray a prayer to turn from the things that you've, the things of your pride or your, or your doubt. God will hear your prayer. Would you pray with me just as we prepare for that song? God, I thank you for the story of Esther, but God, I thank you for the story of, of you through the time through all time, how you continue to reach out with faith. You continue to reach out in love. You continue to reach out in grace. And yes, sometimes, God, we see the consequences. Sometimes, God, we see your righteous anger, your frustration of our wayward hearts. But I pray, God, that we would come to you in humility today. I pray that we would ask others for help to see your providence and that you would heal us, that you'd free us to bring hope, to bring blessing, to bring healing, to bring you. Amen.